morning. Wasn't that sweet this morning, that worship? We, I am excited to be here today. For those of you who don't know, my name is Mike Tropea, and I serve here as the executive pastor. And it's just amazing that I just get the opportunity to share, just because it's just so intimate for me. And so I'm just grateful that I get the opportunity to do that this morning. Uh, we are in the final week of our final hours series where we have been walking through the final hours of Jesus's life that led up to the cross and ultimately the resurrection. And the past two weeks we focused on after he was ascending to heaven, he's, he, the great commission happened in his ascension to say, hey, you will be given power to be my witnesses. And I will be speaking today uh, from Acts 2 in the birth of the church. And this is something that gets me excited. It gets me excited about being the people of God in these final hours. But before I do that, I, I want to celebrate something. Elijah is, is on board here starting today. Today is his first day, so that is what we can celebrate. It's, it's been a, a beautiful process to see God lay it out in front of us about how, uh, who he has led into this role. And I'm excited to lead alongside him as we endeavor to build a culture of worship, more than just song, more than just technology, but as a people, as we become worshipers of Jesus. And it's been an interesting experience, a little bit about, I've gotten an opportunity to oversee the whole hiring process. A lot of people say, hey, what does an executive pastor actually do? They're like, I, I haven't heard of it really. Uh, and some people call me the financial pastor. I'm like, well, that's kind of kind of a little bit of, about it, of what I do. I oversee finances and, or people say, hey, are you like an administrative pastor? What does that actually mean? All good questions. Um, but the idea is I oversee a lot of the operations and the strategy about why we do what we do here as a church. And one of the uh, first hires is Elijah on board over, as I've come on board. And what I was determined to do is through this process keep it to only three interviews for Elijah before presenting to the elder team and before presenting to uh, ultimately the body and it was a good experience because I didn't get three interviews I didn't get three interviews I didn't get only four interviews I didn't get only five interviews I didn't get only six I had a total of eight interviews before I came on board here as a pastor and uh, for good reasons, uh, two reasons, one being age. Um, the average age of an executive pastor in the United States is around 50 years old. And I was only 30 at the time and could hardly grow facial hair. So uh, the issue was that age played a factor in it. And from there, it was my background. A um, little bit about w w why. And it's funny because Barry said to me after he hired me, he's like, actually, when you first applied, actually put your, your resume to the bottom of the pile because I just laughed. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you for laughing. Um, but and he, there's a reason why. Uh, my background is varied from where I stand with the church. I grew up within the Catholic Church, 16 years of my life, um, really hearing about God, hearing about who he was, hearing about Jesus, but rel never really knowing him personally. And then from there, uh, God changed my life, saved me at the age of 17 within an Assembly of God denomination and uh, more charismatic in nature as it relates to the Holy Spirit in the gathering. And I was discipled underneath men and women uh, in that denomination that I love to this day. But that's where I was really discipled. 
And then from there, uh, I was wrestling with different theology about what I believed about who God was. And so I ended up in 2015, we decided to throw everything in a, in a moving van. My wife and my daughter and myself moved to Dallas, Texas to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. And that was more Baptist rooted in its beliefs. And then throw in, moving back here, I am finishing up with three classes to go at Northeastern Seminary, a free Methodist denominational seminary. And I'm like, there's a lot of confusion here. There is a lot of confusion in my background, right? So Barry had right reason to be like, okay, who are we dealing with here? And it was rightfully so. And the question that kept on getting brought up time and time again in all eight interviews was this. And the big thing was, where do you stand with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? Because you look at my background, you have it from charismatic speaking in tongues all the time over here and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible over here, who's this crazy uncle we don't talk about with the Holy Spirit. So we have the different tensions that I was living in. So that is the question that came up every single time about, tell me about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I have a degree at this point in this because I answered it eight times. No, I'm still learning. But the idea is it plays into what I'm going to be speaking about today. Because in these final hours, in Acts 2, something happens that never has happened before. The Holy Spirit comes on the scene. And he starts to change from God being, Jesus being beside us to Jesus being inside us through his Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about that today because there's a lot of miraculous, beautiful things that happen. But the big idea I want us to catch today is this is that we don't worship the acts that happen and the works that happen in Acts 2, but this, we desire the Spirit of God to help us live out the, the same Spirit today in these final hours, what happened in Acts 2. Let me repeat that. The big idea is this, not to worship the acts and the works that happened in Acts 2, but to desire the same Spirit to, that lived in Acts 2, to desire that Spirit to live out through us today in the final hours. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to Acts 2. Uh, I have somehow uh, 25, 30 minutes to get through all of Acts 2, which can be, really be done in three weeks, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Why not? Um, so we will be reading uh, the first uh, 13 verses. But before I get there, let me just explain, explain a background. Uh, shocker here, Acts 2 comes after Acts 1, and what Barry spoke about last week, and he spoke about how Jesus was ascending to heaven, and what he said was this, hey, to these 120 men and women, hold up, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you'll be given power to be my witnesses, but wait, wait for that. So these 120 men and women were probably asking questions like, is, he, is this going to happen? What they did is they just devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to wait and, and pray. And a few days later is when we arrive at Acts 2. And it's what's commonly referred to as Pentecost, 50 days after the Jewish festival of Passover. And there's a whole bunch of depth to understanding that. But what I want to pull out from that is this. All of the Jewish believers celebrated during this Pentecost day, they celebrated with the festival of weeks, it's called, where they brought their share and, and honor to God through the first of their crop. And they celebrated this by making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you had Jews from all over the world descending in one spot for God to do an amazing new work. And so that's where we find ourselves today in the beginning of Acts 2. And it says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, 
they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other known glossa languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem these Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, in our own languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. The first point I want to point out from this is this church, is that we are empowered to live spirit-filled lives. And so when I say that, it can drum up a whole bunch of questions about what the word filled means, and we'll get to that. But here's something new that's happening on the scene. God, God's promise is coming true. The Holy Spirit is introduced on the scene and they start to speak in these other known languages and the, the Jews from around the, the, the known world had gathered there and they start to hear something crazy happen, miraculous, it's beautiful. The mighty works of God are being declared and they think, who, what in the world is happening? These people are drunk. These people, there's something going on. And the reason why I say we are empowered to live spirit-filled lives is because they were filled with the Spirit and something new was happening. And so let's talk about the person of the Holy Spirit here because he is introduced on the scene. In Christian circles, uh, you, may have heard, you may hear people sometimes refer to the Holy Spirit as it. He is a person and that's clear in his word. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not Yoda or baby Yoda or Luke Skywalker moving with the force and moving things around and making, no, no, he's not an inner force. And he's also, again, like I said at the beginning, he's not this crazy uncle that we like to put away and he, you know, he's a little unpredictable, so we like it to keep it clean and nothing orderly. He is a person. He is not an experience to be had. He's a person to be known. And God, Jesus is clear on that. In John 14, if you'll read with me, it'll be behind you. Jesus is clear that he is a person. In verse 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and I will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So what Jesus just puts forward is the fact is, hey, I'm gonna send a helper. He is a person and he has a personality and he has 
different things he shows us about who he is. I'm not going to give you all the different scripture references about what he does and his purpose, but here is a list. The Holy Spirit, he teaches and reminds us about who Jesus is. He convicts the world of sin. He dwells in believers. He reveals scripture, gives wisdom and power for the witness like Barry spoke about last week. He gives spiritual gifts for the building up of his body. He helps in our weakness. He sanctifies us in our Christian walk and he produces fruit in our lives. So the Holy Spirit is a person that is alive and active on the scene in Acts 2. He comes on the scene and he has a purpose and he has a mission to make much of Jesus in the lives of these believers and those in a world around him. And in this passage, two other things happen in Acts 2. Something external Something, being the Holy Spirit, comes internal and he indwells the people of God now. But he not only indwells, he fills. He fills, which means controls these people in this moment. Different than in other parts of scripture, but I'll speak to that a little bit. So when I say indwells, what do I mean? Well, God's spirit, when you put your faith in Jesus, we believe here, when you put your faith in Jesus, there's a supernatural exchange where the person of the Holy Spirit comes and now lives inside of you. You do not need more of the Holy Spirit because he has given himself in full to you at salvation. And how do I know that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this, in him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he is a seal. Every believer that believes in Jesus who says, I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and I believe he is Lord, is given the guarantee, the seal of the Holy, uh, of the Holy Spirit. And what he does is all those uh, things that he produces, he does in the life of an indwelled believer. But here's where it gets different. Here's where there's a choice. There is a choice to live a spirit-filled life. There is a choice to have more of not, we don't need more of the Holy Spirit. He wants more of us. He wants to submit more of our lives to his loving and good guidance. In Ephesians 5, later in the scripture, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Indwelled with the Holy Spirit, if we are indwelled upon salvation, but it's a choice to be filled and controlled by the Spirit. What Paul is writing here is the fact is, hey, do you know what the control means? If you're controlled by much wine, what happens? You lose control of yourself and it controls everything about how you speak or what you don't speak and it overtakes you. And that's what he's saying here is be being filled with the spirit. Be being controlled by the spirit and that is a choice. In church today, we have a choice to be and we're empowered to live spirit-filled lives. And let me just bring it home personally for a second. 
I was a little nervous this week because I was like, I asked my wife, I asked uh, a few friends, and I asked Barry, hey, can I share this story about how this indwelling and uh, filling actually makes sense? And I, when I started to understand what it actually means, and anytime you, you pose that to the, your lead pastor, they're like, okay, what's happening? And so I said, but I said, let's, he said, let's go for it because it makes, it brings this all together. So like I mentioned to you, at 17, God radically saved my life. I pursued everything under the sun, performance, relationships, everything under the sun to satisfy my soul, but God radically saved me out of that. He changed me, and I knew the Spirit was indwelling in me, but what did I rely on? I didn't rely on, on Him in that way. I was holding my sin and the stuff, thinking I could hold both. And so I relied on my youth group. I relied on Sunday morning. And I said, you know what? I, I'll hold on to my new life and my old life at the same time. And so that happened and continued for two years. And I arrived first semester at University of Buffalo uh, and on my own. And I was still holding on to brokenness in my relationships. And the, I remember a weekend, and it was just, it's just a clear episode in my life where God did some work. So after partying pretty heavy one night, I woke up on my friend's apartment and on their bathroom floor. I woke up on my bathroom floor of their apartment for God knows what I did the night before. But the fact is I looked up and I got up from that floor in the morning and I looked in the mirror and I said this, is my faith a sham? Is my faith a sham? Because I knew I, knew I was saved. I knew I had the spirit dwelling in me, but is my faith a sham? Because I'm living and holding on to this life. And as soon as I, I, I worded, uttered the words, is my faith a sham, what came to my mind? Scripture. The Holy Spirit immediately in that moment. It wasn't an audible voice, but Scripture. A Scripture that, I, to be honest with you, I can't remember ever reading. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, for my, gra- uh, for, for my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So therefore I will boast all the more of my weakness so Christ can, can rest on me. And then what, is he, what does he say? For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, hardship, trial, persecution. For when I am weak, I am strong. He's, that spoke to my mind in that moment. And I attribute that to the work of the Holy Spirit. And from that day, I don't worship that experience. But God drastically changed my life to say, hey, I can't keep on living in two worlds. I can't keep on accepting the fact that I am living this indwelled life and just hanging on. God doesn't want this for us, church. He doesn't just want Sunday morning attendance. He wants every bit of your life. I'm gonna put it out there. Are you living on both sides? Are you living with one foot in your identity, in your brokenness, in your sin, and trying to hold on to that? Or are you living with everything submitted to a great God, spirit-filled, where the spirit gets deeper in your life, where he allows freedom to be had. Because how do we live spirit-filled lives? Well, spirit-filled lives are submitted lives. And what happened for me is after this, 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 this time, what happened is God revealed his word to me in new and truer ways. I knew I had to dust off my Bible that I rarely read and actually understand what it actually said. I had to understand that God was not out to rob me of my freedom. He was here to free me from the things that so kept me in bondage. And maybe that's you today where you're living this, saying, I've put my faith and hope and I have the Spirit, Holy Spirit indwelling in me, but I need the Spirit to fill me and empower me in new ways. 
By the spirit of God, through the word of God, we need to submit our marriages, church. By the spirit of God, through the word of God, we need to submit our work situations. By the spirit of God, through the word of God, we need to submit how we parent our kids to say, God, you know much better than I do how to operate. Show me and reveal to me how. I put it all in. Because you wanna know what happens? What does it say at the end of that chapter? I mean, at the end of the section of Acts 2. They were amazed and perplexed and started to critique, are they drunk? What happens to our lives when we live submitted lives where the Spirit's filling our areas? What happens? We have marriages that are stronger. We serve in deeper and truer ways. Things, people that were once enemies are now friends. What happens is the Spirit gets done doing, done doing a deep work and the people around us are amazed, perplexed, and critiquing, say, what has gotten into you? And church, are we that people that are living one hand in, one hand out? Just accepting Sunday morning and uh, maybe a time in the week or are we allowing ourselves to be submitted on a daily basis to the good God through his spirit, revealing who he is to our hearts and saying what needs to be submitted to him? Because what happens is they think that, but we, it transfers from God standing in the distance as a burning bush with a fire living outside of us. Now we have a fire living inside us. We all come burning bushes and talk about people being amazed and perplexed. And what does that allow us then to do? If we live spirit-filled lives that are submitted to him, this quote displays what it allows us to do. It says this, the church's responsibility is that her members be so spirit-filled that the spirit may be able to produce the new phenomena required to startle this age. The church has been far more anxious about emperors and states and wealth and politics and theologies and organizations than about the spirit. It is the church spirit-filled which makes the city amazed, perplexed, and critical. That is the church's opportunity for preaching. If we live these spirit-filled lives, what happens is it allows us an opportunity that leads me into my second point, which is this. We are empowered to declare boldly the good news of the gospel. We are empowered to boldly declare the good news of the gospel. We've talked about this the past couple weeks, so I'm not going to belabor and go deeper into that. But what happens after these tongues and people are declaring the mighty works of God? He says, Peter comes on the scene, and let me just set you up, Peter, here. 50 days ago, he, turned, he denied Christ three times, and now he's preaching the most powerful sermon that has ever been had that we're recipients of today. Something evidently changed. It's because he's become spirit-filled, controlled by the Spirit, declaring the good news of the gospel. So in verses, Acts 2, verses 36 through 39, it says this. He's speaking to these uh, Jews that are in the, area, in, in the area at the time. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn away from your sin and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There he is again. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so the reason why I share that in particular is this. Peter knows the truth of what has just happened. He, he knows, he quotes the Old Testament prophecy there. Uh, people will be having visions and speaking in other tongues and, for, and things were happening. And he quotes that to prove who Jesus was and that he said this would happen. And then he goes and he punches the, the Jews in the throat and said, you who crucified him. He, he puts it all out there, but he boldly declares in loving confidence, Jesus is who he says he is. And we have that same power and same ability to do today, church. And I encourage you to go listen to Drew's two weeks ago and Barry's last week to understand deeper how we do that. But one thing I also want to pull from here is there's people on the other side and you might find yourself on this side of the boat. Hey, I, I hear who you're saying this Jesus is and something is stirring in my heart to, to understand deeper ways. Let me, let me just lay out the good news of the gospel for you here. Well, it's this, God had a plan, a design for us at the beginning and we royally screwed it up. We royally screwed it up by choosing our own way and we thought we could know better than God. So we chose that our own way and it's only led to brokenness and disappointment and we could never work our way to God. But God said, hey, I'm not gonna give up on my people. I created you for a purpose and I'm gonna send my only son that if you believe in him, he will pass over your sins and you can have eternal life and I will also give you my spirit in which you will, can live in fullness. And that's the good news of the gospel, church. The fact is it's not based on our resume. It's based on Jesus' perfect work. And so if you are at that point today where you're like, I have no idea who this Jesus is, but I want to know him. Hey, today is the day of salvation and don't miss a beat. If God is impressing and the Holy Spirit is wooing your heart today, let me say today is the day because we don't know our, what day, how many days we have left so don't keep on pushing and saying, you know, tomorrow, today is the day. And I'd love to connect with you about what that means. But the fact of the matter is this, going back to Acts 2, it says 3,000 people were added to the number that day because Peter stood spirit-filled, empowered to boldly declare who Jesus was. And it changed the narrative. It's why we are here 2,000 plus years later being able to celebrate and understand that we are recipients of this bold declaration. And so can we be a church that does that today? Can we be that church? And the last point I wanna make is this. This is probably one of my most, I get excited about this section of scripture because it talks about being a community of faith. And I'm sure Drew can attest to that because I talk about it way too much. Um, point three I want to make is this. We are empowered to selflessly devote our lives. We are empowered to selflessly devote our lives. So in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, it says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love it. And why do I love it? Because we see God created a culture through his spirit that was counter to the culture around him. God in his sovereignness, these people filled with the spirit were selflessly devoting their lives to one another. They just selflessly devoted their lives to understanding God's word in a deep and true way. They selflessly devoted their lives to having fellowship with one another. And I believe this is a beautiful picture of reversing the dialogue that happened at the beginning in Genesis when Cain killed his brother Abel and and Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper? And this is bringing it back into fulfillment and saying, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper today. Everyone in here is part that calls Grace Chapel uh, their home is, is a part of the family of God. And we're responsible for being selflessly devoted to one another. It says they were selflessly devoted to eating together. I love that one a lot because we get to eat together. There's something spiritual about having a nice meal together. I, I, I fully believe it. Selflessly devoted to prayer. We are working as a, as a ministry and we're actually developing a prayer leadership team and we're walking through developing a culture of prayer here. Not just a last resort is prayer, but a first response that we are a people that pray and it's a culture of worship here that we're continuing to invest in, but we need to be a people selflessly devoted to that. Selflessly devoted to giving our time, our talent and treasure away because we don't take any of it with us. And you know what happened? There was never, any, there was never anyone in that, that area that had need because everyone was taking care of one another. And it's not a soft communism where you just give everything away and put it in the pot and receive. No, no. It's saying, hey, I saw my brother had a need and I met it. And that's the community that we are prayerfully fostering here. And then starting in September is when we're diving into community groups, not just something that we do, but it's who we are, not a program that we offer. It's the people that God is making us to be surrounded around God's word, his people eating together, prayer and loving one another deeply. And so church, I'm asking, are we selflessly devoting our lives to God and to others? Can we be that church? Because in these final hours that we find ourselves in, we don't know the day or the time that Jesus is coming back, but if we live spirit-filled lives, and if we boldly declare in our time here the good news of the gospel, and if we selflessly devote ourselves, I'm gonna tell you, God's gonna say, well done. He is going to say well done to us as a people, as individual believers, and he's gonna say well done to us as a church family. And I can guarantee you that changes the game. Or guess what? What happens at the end of that? If people see that as the community we're becoming, the Lord adds to our number day by day those who are being saved. And so I put before you in summary this. Are you wrestling between having one hand in to faith and being indwelt by the spirit and holding in one hand for, your, for, for what you think is best? Because I'm gonna put before you today, hey, 
being spirit-filled, submitting those things to Jesus is far more worth it. You'll experience far more freedom. You'll be able to walk in the spirit and fruit will be produced of love, patience, peace, kindness that will go far beyond what you think, what you think can be possible because God is not out to rob you. He's here to free you. And if you find yourself outside of faith today, I'm gonna say to you today, hey, if God is moving your heart, I'd love to connect with you. Connect after service, those online. Just go on gconline.org slash connect, fill out a card and say, I wanna know more about who this Jesus is. We would love to connect with you. But can we not let another day pass?